Hello. Thank you for tuning into this Bible study. Today we're going to cover the second half of Genesis 43, as well as all of Genesis 44. Before we dig into this, I want you to join me and let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it. Thank you for the story of Joseph. Uh, speak through me, Lord. Let these be your words, not mine. Teach us something about your character. We dedicate this time to you. We love you, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, recap. Uh, Genesis, this last chunk of Genesis that we've been going through is the story of Joseph. We've been on it for a couple weeks now. And right now we are uh, at least two years into the famine in Egypt. The famine has spread uh, up north to the extent that Jacob, Israel, uh, the 11 brothers of Joseph, uh, the famine has struck them, and Jacob has sent uh, his 11, 10 sons down to Egypt. They go down to Egypt looking to buy grain. Joseph, the long-lost brother that they sold into slavery, is now second in command in Egypt. Uh, they come to buy grain from none other than him. He recognizes them. The brothers don't recognize Joseph. He recognizes all of them, though. So that then starts what we studied all last week uh, of uh, this strategy that Joseph has to determine whether the brothers have repented of their sin, whether they have uh, acknowledged what they did to their brother Joseph, or whether they have just completely forgotten about it. So to do this, what Joseph does is he, he, he has a, a plan, a strategy, clearly given to him by God, to um, he, he accuses the brothers of being spies. As you recall, he accuses them of being spies. They come down for food and they say, no, 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 we're not spies. Says, you are spies. You've come to, to see the weakness in our land. And he says, no, you're spies. So they say, no, 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 no. So he imprisons one of the brothers and sends the rest uh, back north with the grain that they've purchased. Now, secretly, Joseph uh, put the money that they had brought, the silver that they had brought, he put it back in the bags of grain so that when they returned up north to Canaan, they discovered that not only did they have all the grain that they had purchased, but all the money was returned to them. Uh, and their brother, Simeon, is now in prison, and the only way they're going to get him back is if the brothers return with their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is the only full-blood brother of Joseph. So then the famine is, is severe, and period of time goes by, and Jacob says, okay, go back down, bring Benjamin with you, bring double the money, and we need grain, we need food, so go get us food. They return, they go back down, and when Joseph sees them and sees that Benjamin is with them, he has them taken to his personal residence to join him for lunch. And that's where we pick it up. So we are going to be starting um, Genesis 43, verse 15. Genesis 43, verse 15. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The men did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's house. 
Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given the treasure in your sacks. I, rece I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon, because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to the Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. We're going to pause here, talk about this uh, last chunk of 43 uh, before we pick it up uh, and, and read 44. Okay, so the brothers come back down to Joseph a second time, come back down to Egypt uh, and meet with Joseph to be able to buy grain again. Joseph sees them, has them taken to his house. They realize, okay, something's up here. Uh, this isn't normal. So the men are frightened and understandably so. There's three things that jump out to us as we're reading through this that it would be logical. Like if you put yourself in the position of the brothers, they do not understand why uh, this man, they don't know his name is Joseph. Uh, he goes by Zaphanath Panea is the Egyptian name for him. So uh, they don't understand why General Zaphanath Panea, whatever you want to call him, um, why he's doing this. Why did they, all they want to do is buy grain and this guy thinks that they're spies. So he, they hold Simeon, send them back, and then they come back for more grain. Uh, when Joseph sees them, has them taken to his personal house. So that is uh, thing number one that would have thrown off uh, just a lot of red flags, like, oh my gosh, okay, he's pulled us aside to our private residence, to his private residence. He returns Simeon to them, and then 
has this massive feast. So thing number one that is a caution that would have caused concern is that they were isolated, that they were taken out from general population and taken to the general's home, uh, to Zaphanaf's home. Uh, then the second thing is that they they then assume that this is because uh, the silver was returned into their sacks the first time that they came down. So they go to the steward, Joseph's steward, and they say, hey, um, here's the thing. The last time we came, our money was returned to us, and we're, we just want to make sure everything's cool. We've brought double the money to pay you back. And we have an interesting thing here that said, and we'll return to this in just a second, but the steward says, uh, don't worry, God has taken care of you. God has blessed you. God put the silver back in your sack. Now, we know that that was Joseph who did that, but the steward is clearly working with Joseph um, in this uh, strategy that he has to see the true character and heart of his brothers. The third thing that would have caused caution uh, and surprise and bewilderment, they act, it, it says in the text straight up, they were assigned seating. They were seated in their birth order. There's no way the Zaphonath Penea would have known this. There's no way that any of them, anybody other than the brothers would have known who the eldest was all the way down to the youngest. And yet that's how they were seated. They've got to be just bewildered by all this stuff happening. So uh, something else that jumped out to me as I was reading through this, uh, there's a few different things. One, don't be afraid your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. So this is an interesting element, is, is that the story that the brothers say, um, there's an element of uh, discrepancy between uh, 43 and 44, excuse me, 42 and 43. And the discrepancy is this, is that um, 42, 27... They've left Egypt. They're going north. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get food for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver is in return, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? So there's two different things. First, let's camp out and talking about the silver being returned to them. This is the first... Uh, of three instances of the telling of how the silver was found. So the first time uh, in, in the, the narration that's being given to us, it, the brothers have left Egypt, they're going back north to Canaan, and they stop for the night. And it's there that one of them opens a sack and finds the silver in it. Then fast forward to verse 35. They are now up in Canaan, and they're with Jacob, their father. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When, when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. The point being here is, is that we see a second instance in which the brothers open up their sacks and now they find all of the money. That wasn't specified before, but here it is, that, that each man's sack, his pouch of silver was in it. Then we have uh, one of the brothers accounting the story to the steward, and he says, and when he's telling the story, he says, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight and the mouth of in the mouth of his sack. So that does 
validate and agree with the first telling that we see here in verse 27 of 42, uh, where they stop the first night and they find the silver. Why is it? Why is it? This is just a question. It, it just... It, it, it's interesting, and I do not know the answer to this, but why is it that when they return to Canaan, they find the silver in the sacks? Didn't they find it the first night when they were out in the desert in between Egypt and Canaan? And when they tell the story to the steward, that's what they say. They say each of them found in the mouth of his sack all the silver. So there's two potentials for this. This isn't uh, a huge issue. We, we have narration being told so the question is, in my mind, it's one of two things. One, uh, the first night that they stop in the desert, they did find all the silver. But they don't know how Jacob's going to respond. Jacob is a little bit of a... They don't know what he's going to do. He's he. I mean, you saw in the verse, everything is against me. Um, he is terrified of losing Benjamin, his favorite wife was Rachel. She only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph has been taken from him, presumed dead, and Benjamin is the only one, that, only one that's left. He has extreme favoritism. Uh, so chances are, this is one possibility, and this is just my theory. One theory is simply that they don't know what Jacob's going to do. Maybe Jacob, if he were to know that they found the silver on day one, he would have uh, expected them to turn around and go straight back to Egypt. They had all the food. They were part of the way there to Canaan. Don't know. So maybe they played like they didn't know that the silver had been returned to them. They open up the sacks and they're like, oh, what's this? The silver has been returned to us. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. The other possibility is that when they're recounting the story to the steward, waiting for Joseph to arrive, they just summed it up. They didn't go so far as to uh, belabor the story and over-explaining and saying, oh, well, we found a portion of our silver the first night. Then when we were counted our father up in Canaan, we found the rest of our silver. They just simply say, when we stopped for the night, we realized that all of our silver was returned to us that we hadn't paid for the grain. This isn't a huge issue in my mind. It's not a discrepancy in the Bible. It's simply that uh, it's one of those two theories, but it is just interesting. It, it, it gave me pause just to see that there was a little bit of a difference in the telling of the story. Not a big deal. But the big thing that jumps out to me is everyone, Jacob, the brothers, what is this that God has done to us? The brothers say when they see the silver, and then uh, Jacob says, everything is against me. All of this, all of this is happening. God is orchestrating all of these, these things to happen, to bless Jacob and his descendants, to bless Israel. But all they see is the bad. All they say is, what is this thing that God has done to us? And it's the steward who says in response to them uh, saying, well, we still have all of our silver. We must not have paid for the grain. It's the steward that says, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. God is blessing you. That's the message that he's giving. Going on from there, we see an interest, another interesting glimpse into the culture. When Joseph arrives to have lunch with his brothers, he doesn't eat with them. 
they eat in a separate area. It specifically says, uh, they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were with them by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. It's verse 32 of uh, chapter 43. We get a glimpse of the prejudice between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. They detested shepherds, and clearly we see the prejudice that will eventually uh, the Egyptians will enslave, Pharaoh will enslave the Hebrews. That is the gap in between the end of Genesis and the picking up of Exodus is uh, Israel's enslavement in Egypt. And we see a glimpse of that. They won't even eat with them. Now we continue on uh, and we're going to cover, I'm going to read all of 44. It's not that long. And then we'll break that down. Join me. Genesis 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill them in sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this cup my master's? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found in the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sacks to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to you, my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. 
Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants and left your youngest brother comes down with you. You will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back, buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you. My father all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Okay, let's chat through this. So, 44. We see Benjamin, the youngest brother, return to Canaan with the other 11 brothers. They're headed north. And as they're leaving, before they leave even, excuse me, uh, Joseph tells the steward to take a silver cup, his silver cup used for divination. We're going to talk about that. Uh, at the end, we'll talk about that. And he tells the steward to put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Why does he do this? This is all a continued strategy to determine the heart of his brothers. Benjamin is his blood brother. The next, the, the youngest of the 12, Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And what Joseph wants to determine and find out, will they abandon Joseph's brother, Benjamin, in the same way that they did him for gain? Way back in Genesis 37, as you recall, they sold. Judah was the instigator. The second oldest brother was the instigator. And he was the one who said, you know what? Rather than killing our brother, let's sell him. Let's make some money uh, off the Ishmaelites. So they sell him into slavery. And now Joseph does this. He plants the cup so that the, the brothers now have an option. They can leave Benjamin in Egypt and gain and, and take all the food and leave him there and just go up north. And they could make up some story to their father about Benjamin being killed or taken or whatever. Are they going to do that? That is the question that Joseph wants to know the answer to. Okay, so uh, verse 9 of 44. Um, why would we do such a thing? So the steward puts the silver cup in the sacks along with all the grain. All the brothers, including Benjamin, leave. Then Joseph sends the steward after them. He then 
confronts the brothers and says, one of you has stolen my master's cup. This line from verse 9, if any of your servants has the cup, they will die. It's an interesting line. Uh, if any of our servants is found to have it, he will die. This is actually reminiscent of when Jacob, their father, left Rachel's and Leah's house. It was Laban. Laban was Jacob's father-in-law. And he he leaves in the middle of the night without anybody saying goodbye. Uh, and Rachel steals the household gods of Laban. Laban is furious that uh, Jacob took his two daughters and all of the grandchildren and left in the middle of the night. And he confronts him. He catches up to him and says, uh, what is this thing that you have done? Why did you steal my household gods? And it is the response of Jacob. He says, we haven't stolen them. None of us have them. The one who, if you find anybody who actually stole them, that person will die. Jacob said that not knowing that Rachel had stolen the idols and was actually sitting on them. Now, thankfully for her and for Jacob in this situation, they don't find them. But it's the same thing here where one of the brothers says, why would we do such a thing? We have not done this. And whoever, if you find a person who has stolen uh, Zaphonaph's silver cup, that person will die. So then he goes through and, oh, excuse me, sorry. Uh, that's Genesis 31, 32 is that story of Jacob saying to Laban, whoever's stolen your household gods uh, will surely die. So we see... <clears throat> The cup is found in Benjamin's sack. They all return. They all return and are taken in front of Joseph. And Joseph says to them, what is this thing that you have done? Do you not know that I am a, I am a man who can find things out by divination? It's an interesting line. Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Again, we're going to come back to that. I love Judah's response here. Judah says, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go. So two different things that I want to touch on here. One, Judah's character. Judah was the one that years prior was the one who said, you know what, let's not kill him. Let's actually make some money off of him and sell him. Judah was the instigator here of selling uh, Joseph into slavery. Now, we don't know. Maybe he actually was trying to do uh, right by Joseph because the other brothers actually wanted to kill him. And it was Judah that stood up for him. Uh to say, no, let's make some money and not kill the boy, but actually sell him. We don't know. We don't know that. But you see a total character switch. You see a complete reversal uh, where you see repentance. You see complete admission of guilt. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. There's no pride here. There's no trying to get out of it. He is simply... He has fallen on his knees and he just says, we submit. What can we say? We can't do anything. He's totally humbled in this situation. 
The other thing is, is that Joseph then gives the opportunity one last time. He gives him one more chance to see his true character. He says, you don't need to stay. Benjamin is the one who stole the cup. Benjamin will stay in prison. The rest of you can go. And this is where we see uh, the recounting of the whole story. Judah then tells the whole story about how uh, the brother was sold uh, and is no more and how much, he doesn't say the brother was sold, but he says that the brother is dead. But he tells how much Jacob, their father, loves Benjamin and how Judah cannot uh, do anything that would cause harm to either Benjamin or cause grief to their father. And so Judah, in a uh, uh, just a total sacrificial uh, willingness, offers himself in Benjamin's place. Do not take the boy, take me instead. Allow him to return to his father. I cannot see my father's face uh, at finding out that Benjamin has been taken from him. Judah and the other brothers were there when they gave uh, Joseph's coat of many colors, his, his cloak uh, of distinguishment, when they gave it to their father and it, it had the, the sheep's blood, lamb's blood on it. And they watched as their father uh, made the logical conclusion that his beloved son Joseph had been killed. He saw the grief. He saw the sorrow. He saw the mourning for... Uh, Jacob is still mourning for Joseph's uh, demise years and years prior. But we see here uh, the true character and heart of Judah. And we're going to see that it is too much for Joseph to bear. And the opening line of verse 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He has, the test has been passed. The brothers have repented of the sin and they've clearly changed. They are not the same brothers that they were uh, years before when they sold Joseph into slavery. We'll pick that up next week. We'll hit chapter 45 and a little bit of 46 next week um, as the reunion, uh, as Zaphanath Paneah reveals that he is actually Joseph. There's something else I want to camp out on here um, before we wrap up, and that is this line on divination. This is now um, the third time in Genesis that we've seen this term divination, right? So in verse 5 of 44, isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? Then in verse 15, when Judah and the brothers are before Joseph, Joseph says, do you not know that a man like me can find things out by divination? So what is divination? Uh, Bible dictionary. So see what the Bible dictionary says on the definition of divination. The attempt to obtain secret knowledge, especially of the future, either by inspiration or by the reading and interpretation of certain signs called omens. Those who practice divination assume that the gods or spirits are in possession of secret knowledge desired by man, and they can be induced to impart it on man. Also in the definition here is hydromancy, which is foretelling from the appearance of water, 
astrology or the determination of supposed influences of the heavenly bodies. Rhabdomancy, R-H-A-B-D-O-M-A-N-C-Y, rhabdomancy, or the use of a divining rod. Then you have hypotesis. <laughs> Sorry. Then you have hypotoscopy, hypotoscopy, which is divination by the examination of the liver of a dead animal. Then you have necromancy or consulting the dead and the sacrifice of children by burning. That was a practice that the Canaanites, um, when Israel, after uh, the desert wanderings, when they returned to Canaan, uh, that is a practice of the Canaanites. Um, all of these things fall under divination, this idea of um, communing with spirits, communing with the dead, uh, in order to be able to find out the future or find out um, wisdom from spirits, uh, either dead or demonic spirits. We also saw it in Genesis 30, 27, where Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, says to Jacob, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So this practice was clearly a cultural practice uh, of the day. And the, the reading that I found on it, um, people in places of authority, the wealthy, the elite, would either themselves practice divination or they would have a sorcerer or a magician um, or a spiritist that would do this in order to be able to um, incite wisdom or tell the future or see something that's happening in a different location. Now, the question is, and I'll hit this at the end, is Joseph doing this? Does this give us a glimpse into the fact that Joseph ain't so perfect and that Joseph actually is practicing a pagan practice that the Bible has a lot to say against? That's a question we will answer here uh, at the end. But uh, I did a search for divination, and from that, I opened up a rabbit hole, and I'm going to recite some of the verses, some of the verses uh, in the Bible, it, it has very clear words on this practice and other practices very similar to it. Uh, I will put the scriptures uh, up on the screen. I will also put them uh, in the comments down below. Leviticus 19.26, the law, do not practice divination or seek omens. It's clarified in Deuteronomy 18.10 through 12. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, uh, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. It's from Deuteronomy. Acts, in the New Testament, we actually see this. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. A spirit of divination is uh, in the King James Version. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Soothsaying is uh, the word in King James. 
1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22 through 23. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the Lord, the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. That's Samuel speaking to King Saul. Isaiah has a lot to say. We're going to hit four pieces from Isaiah. Isaiah 2, 6. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Isaiah 8, 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah 47, 13 through 15. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Interesting. It's a reference to horoscopes, which we still, and that's prevalent today. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go in their error. There is not one that can save you. Micah 3, 5 through 7. This is what the Lord says. A false prophet who leads my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for their prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. Isaiah 44, 24 through 25. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Divination, sorcery, interpreters of omens, witchcraft, spell casting, those who are mediums or spiritists who consult the dead, astrologers, stargazers, seers, diviners. Those are all words that are used in the Bible to describe um, this problem, this satanic uh, spiritist movement. And it's clear that that was an issue in the Old Testament, and even in the early church, when you have uh, in Acts 16, 16, where you have the fortune teller that is able to tell the future because of a demon that is in her, um, the apostles uh, cast her out, and the owners of the slave uh, want reformation for their lost wages because they lost their ability to make money from the demon that was uh, telling fortunes.
So clearly, this is something that is an issue in the Old Testament, as well as in the early, early church. But it's not, a, it's not prevalent today, right? Uh, an interesting book that uh, I've read through, uh, it is uh, exhaustive on multiple subjects, is uh, Walter Martin, uh, The Kingdom of the Cults. This goes through and gives descriptions and explanations of why uh, many world religions are considered cults. Gives explanations from a biblical standpoint of why they are called that. And one of them, chapter 7, talks about spiritism, the cult of antiquity. By far the oldest form of religious cult extent today, and certainly one of the deadliest where the certainty of divine judgment is concerned is that of spiritism, often erroneously referred to as spiritualism today. Spiritists repeatedly attempt to prove that the Bible endorses spiritism. In fact, they cite any number of references in an attempt to prove that many biblical characters, not accepting the apostles and our Lord himself, were indeed mediums and encourage such practices. Since the First World War, the religious horizons of the globe have seen the rapid rise of various forms of spiritism, a religion unique in that it offers contact with and information from beings beyond the grave. Much of contemporary spiritism has been exposed by uh, competent professionals as fraudulent. However, not all psychic and spiritistic phenomena can be exposed as fraudulent. There is a spiritual dimension that cannot be ignored. Authentic spiritists draw their power from the one the Bible calls a roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter 5.8. It's Satan. Spiritism, as we shall see, directly contradicts the Bible, God's word. The greatest of all source books on the subject of spiritism is, of course, the Bible, which gives historical outline of spiritism in a most concise and dependable form. Scripture reveals that the ancient Egyptians were practitioners of cultism, of magic sorcery, necromancy, which were utilized by the priests of the demon gods of Egypt to duplicate the miracles of Moses when he appeared before Pharaoh with the divine command. That's Exodus chapter 7, verse 11 and 22, as well as in chapter 8, uh, verse 18. The attitude of God toward those who practice the forbidden sin is also clearly outlined in Scripture. There is a uh, spiritual world, and there is a battle that is ongoing uh, that consists of both light and darkness. And there are people and individuals who, uh, for profit or uh, for sinful desires do uh, communicate with that realm. Now, on the as it, as it mentioned, many, many, many of these mediums and fortune tellers, tarot card readers, um, they do it for profit. It's a show. And, and much of that can be explained um, through uh, a, as a hoax. But there is an element of reality in the fact that 
uh, unmistakably there is a spirit realm. And uh, there's a few verses that I want to read um, in particular. So there's, there's two of them, but why don't you join with me? We're going to flip over to Zechariah. Zechariah, all the way at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah 10. Give you a second to get there. Zechariah 10, picking it up on verse 2. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for the lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against these shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. I love that. That is a reference of the coming Messiah. Um, listed there. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from his tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. So here's a question. Is Joseph using divination is he communing with the dead? Is he using this cup to be able to see into the future uh, and speak with satanic spirits? No, I do not believe so. This is all part of the ploy that he is doing, the strategy that he is doing to see the true character of Judah and the other brothers. He never claims to practice divination. He never says that. The steward says, this is the cup that my master uses for divination. But the steward also was in on the ploy as well and told him, told them, uh, you've stolen the silver cup. I mean, he's clearly in on it. And then when they're in front of Joseph, Joseph says to them, do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? He's saying this, do you not realize that a man like me, an Egyptian ruler like myself, can see into the future and can know things through divination? I do not believe that he is saying that he practices divination. Last chapter we saw where he said I, he, he fears God, he fears the Lord. Joseph, I believe his character is still intact and he is an upstanding guy and he's not using satanic, uh, spiritist, uh, cult type divination to be able to determine the future. No, I think he's just staying in character uh, to really, really, truly see the heart of Judah and the brothers. And the point of all of this, the whole chapter, the whole lead up for this is that the brothers clearly have been confronted with their sin. They have been forced uh, to deal with the fact of what they did. In coming down to Egypt, they were forced to deal with it. And then when well, everything that Joseph has done thus far has forced them to deal with their past. 
and we see a repentant heart. Philippians 4, 6. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Divination, this idea of seeking mediums and spirits and looking to the stars or to water or to a dead animal's liver or to the dead themselves, look to God. The Bible makes it very clear. If you're troubled, if you're anxious, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with thanksgiving, submit your requests to God. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God is immediately going to give you what you are requesting, but it does say that you will receive his peace. Submit it to God. Let it go. Give it over to God. It's in God's hands, and it's his peace that you will receive, not in getting exactly what you want. You might, but in realizing the fact that you are not God, that God is God and you are not. So as we wrap up, the question that I have for you uh, to either think about yourself, uh, discuss with your spouse or good friend or with your small group, is there sin that you're still holding on to? It's a tough thing to, uh, to ask. It's a scary thing to ask because of what you might discover. It might be that you're holding on to something that you need to let go of. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. I spoke about this last week. If you have unrepented sin, let it go. Let it go. Now, God will let you know if there's somebody that you need to confess it to. I find it relatively easy to confess my sins directly to God, but to confess my sins to the person that I have harmed, well, that's much harder. God gives us his forgiveness because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, because of the punishment that he went through, he has been punished once for all for my past, present, and future sins. So God does not punish me in a condemnation sort of a way. I'm not condemned to eternity in hell because of my sins. Now, that being said, I do have to deal with repercussions of those sins, as do you. And you will not find peace until you do repent. Repentance is simply turning around, is admitting where you're at, admitting what you have done. We see this week Judah in particular, but we see Judah and the brothers fall at their knees, admit that they are helpless to do anything, that they are broken. And that's where God wants us to be because when we are in that position, then he can lift us up. Then we have all, un we have all righteousness. We are purified. 
And God is able to wrap us up and build us back up in his image. But if we refuse to acknowledge that, if we refuse to repent, if we, re- if we are filled with pride and, and, and don't admit our own failures, there's no room for God because we're so full of ourselves. It's a challenging prayer, but I do challenge you in that. Pray on that. Is there something that you need to repent of? And is there someone that you need to confess to and make amends with? The freedom you will feel after you apologize or come clean on whatever it was that you have done is so worth the work and and the awkwardness. And you might end up destroying a relationship because of this. But that's the only way you and potentially that other person are going to be able to uh, heal through this and move on. Lord, thank you. Thank you that no matter what we have done, repentance is a simple turn, a returning to you, a simple turnaround and acknowledgement of our folly, of our discretion, of whatever it was that we have done, and that you are fast and quick to forgive us of that sin. No matter what it is, Lord, you are there. All we have to do is turn to you and submit. And you will forgive us and you'll give us a, you'll wrap us up in your arms and your love and you'll restore us and you'll rebuild us stronger than we were before. Thank you, Lord, that you do love us, that you do care about us, that your creation is not just left alone to deal with its own repercussions, that you do have a say in this, that you do interact with us on a day-to-day basis and that you do want to hear from us and that you do listen to us. Thank you, Lord, for that. We don't deserve it. We're so grateful for it. I love you, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome, guys. Join next week as we're going to see Zaphinath Panea uh, take off his Egyptian disguise, so to speak, and reveal that he is the long-lost brother Joseph that is not dead uh, and that is doing quite well. The brothers are reunited. Have a phenomenal week, and we'll see you next week.